Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to um, the Progressive Britain History Project, uh, our third episode, in fact, which is part of the Progressive Britain podcast. Now, in each episode, we aim to look at different aspects of the Labour Party's past with the aim of promoting a clearer understanding of its contested history, perhaps busting a few myths on the way, introducing some new ways of thinking and making connections between Labour's history and its present and future. Uh, I'm Stephen Fielding. I'm Professor of political history at the University of Nottingham. And my co-presenter is Laura Beers, who's Professor of History at the American University in Washington. And today in our episode, we uh, have got Greg Rosen, um, who is uh, Chair of the Labour History Group, author of Old Labour to New, and editor of Politico's Dictionary of Labour Biography. Um, So he's keeping busy um, but today, um, Greg's going to talk to us about Hugh Gateskill, um, the former Labour leader um, who led the party um, from 1955 until his very sudden and uh, untimely death in 1963. Um, Gateskill is, um, I mean, he, at his, in, his, in his time as leader, he was a highly controversial leader. Um, he took uh, the Labour Party through the Suez crisis, uh, through a battle over Clause 4, over unilateralism and Europe. Um, so he kept busy. And during that time, he also lost the 1959 general election. Um, he was, it would be fair to say, loathed on the Labour left for much of his career. He had a big battle with um, Anaran Bevan when he was Chancellor and Bevan resigned over um, rearmament over the Korean War and uncertain cuts to um, to the National Health Service, um, and and on his but on his death, um, he was for certain members of the Labour Party um, revered, um, particularly uh, those um, who would go on to form the SDP in the early nineteen eighties and play a leading role in the Labour governments of the nineteen sixties and the nineteen seventies, um, but. He was so loathed uh, within within the wider party, at least amongst certain those on the left, um, that one young socialist, when asked um, in an academic survey uh, what had been the best thing that had happened in 1963, replied the death of Hugh Gateskill. 
So Gates Gould's got a very contested um, position within Labour history, uh, but but at the moment is has now sort of fallen into some degree of um, well uh, ignorance. When YouGov asked Labour members in 2020 uh, about their favourite leaders, nearly two thirds said they didn't either know enough to say anything about Gates Gould or they just weren't sure, and that put him as the third least popular. Labour leader, so far as present Labour members are concerned, uh, just above Ramsay MacDonald and between Tony Blair. So he's kind of a, an interesting figure for us to talk about. Um, and Greg, um, I guess my first question is, why should should we be talking about Hugh Gates School? What, 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 what does talking about Hugh Gates School offer us today? What insights into the Labour Party? So much. And thank you. Thank you so much for having me on today. Um, he is forgotten by many people, but on the other hand, he inspired many others. There are few people who, 40 years after their death, can claim to have people serving in the Labour cabinet who see themselves as direct disciples. And Hugh Gateskill, having died in uh, 1963, uh, several decades after his death, you you, you find uh, John Smith, as Labour leader, very much a Gateskillite, very much an admirer of Hugh Gateskill. Uh, as a as a young Labour activist, it was Hugh Gateskill who inspired him. Donald Dewar as well, and George Robertson serving in the first uh, Tony Blair Labour government, and Ivor Richard, uh, who who served as well in Blair's first Labour government. Um, had been a young activist with Gate School, and they've hugely admired him. And they admired him because he inspired them. He was a leader who led from the front, and that fundamentally is why he became Labour's leader. Some people recall the phrase, uh, Nye Bevan's phrase, uh, describing some of his rivals for Labour's leadership as desiccated calculating machines, and often that's taken to be Gateskill. Bevan actually meant it as a general swipe against some of the technocrats who served alongside him in that Attlee government. And Gateskill was among those. He was certainly technocratic. He aspired to be a competent minister. He saw himself as an economist, he'd been an academic economist. But he was more than that, and he became more than that. And that's why people backed him for the Labour leadership, because he stood up for what he thought was right. And he wasn't um, shy of doing that. And he stood up against the infiltration of the Labour Party by the communist left in the early 50s that, um, that was causing Labour such problems in that era. And that is one reason why he was so loathed by the Marxist left, because he was one of their most powerful opponents. Nybevan, of course, eventually he worked very closely with. But is is it because he's 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 so resolutely on the right? I mean, would it be fair to call him, you know, probably one of the most right wing Labour leaders in the post war period? I mean, he he actually tried to get Bevan expelled, didn't he? Although they reconciled afterwards in nineteen fifty four, he did try to get him kicked out um of, of the party, which kind of resonates with maybe contemporary things going on today. But it's is it because of his right wingness? I mean but he was an Atlanticist, so he was very keen on the American 
alliance and, and a multilateralist. Um, he, he wanted, um, I think, the Labour Party to, to accept the mixed economy, you know, to put, that's why he wanted Clause 4 maybe to be, um, to be revised. And, and that all those things, if you put them together, apart from him, maybe his attitude towards um, joining the common market in 1962, all those things, that puts him at, at odds with uh, what like some Labour members would, would consider to be the heart of what it means to be a Labour member of the, of the Labour Party. Uh, Laura certainly wants to come in on this. Well, Steve, I think you just need to be careful when classing him as right wing, because I think that that's the risk of what splits um, a progressive coalition, right? I mean, he's to the right of Anya and Bevan, and certainly to the right of Harold Wilson, you know, in the 1950s. But some of the disputes that um, that he had with the Labour left, including one of the issues over which Nye Bevan resigned, his decision to um, impose charges for dentures and spectacles on the NHS. It's hard um, sitting as an, in the United States at the moment where they're fighting over Biden's Build Back Better bill. One of the things that's been thrown off after being put on the table is the idea that Medicare should cover dentures and spectacles, right, which Biden put through. And the response was, this is a bridge too far for many within the Democratic coalition, right? So, um, and for Gates School, this was fiscal responsibility that you needed to be in the way that many, you know, centrist and conservative Democrats now see not having free dentures and spectacles as fiscal responsibility. He thought that he wanted to be the guardian of this, you know, um, social democracy and mixed economy that labor had brought in after 1945 by by husbanding it, you know, responsibly. Um, and he, I don't think he would have characterized, he would have characterized himself on the right of this left-right spectrum, but not necessarily, you know, as right-wing. So I think we need to be careful about those terminologies and the way that they divide, um, divide the left. I would completely agree with that. Uh, he would see himself as, as a radical. And that radicalism was absolutely reflected in the uh, determination he had to try and win elections for Labour. And his frustration was with, in Dennis Healy's phrase, those who saw the Labour Party as some sort of socialist Sunday school, some sort of debating society. And and for Gate School, who uh, 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 believed passionately in practical measures to uh, tackle poverty, to build a fairer social society, he thought that that you you need to be realistic about how you win elections, get into power and do things. And he saw also, he was a passionate Democrat, he saw, and, and Nybevan agreed with him, um, they, they both saw the... Uh, those in the Labour Party who saw uh, the Communist Party and the Soviet bloc as potential allies as deeply mistaken, and and they and and they wanted to stand up to that. And a lot of the early battles with Nybevan were fundamentally about personal rivalry, and Nybevan had been a fantastically successful uh, Secretary of State. Uh, 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 fantastically successful at health, uh, building the NHS. And he felt he really ought to be promoted and recognised for that. And then when 
he was passed over, as he saw it, for Hugh Gateskill as Chancellor and then Herbert Morrison at the Foreign Office. He felt frustrated and he felt that um, uh, people were being put in positions where he really should have a, a shot. And um, uh, and Gate Schools responded very um, poorly in terms of in terms of personal relationships, and he had very strong personal relationships with with many people, and had incredible personal warmth. But sometimes he got it wrong, and uh, his his personal relationships with Nybevan were pretty appalling early on. And part of the learning process uh, was 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 the two of them building a relationship. But it was a lot more about personality than it was about politics. I mean, he, so, he, is, he is associated, Gateskill is associated with um, a certain harsh, confrontational, um, you might say principled um, kind of approach to being Labour leader that he had a, it wasn't like, when I, when I sort of described him as right wing, I mean, most people in the Labour think if you're right wing, you're a trimmer, you keep compromising, you know, you're kind of ex- accepting various things. You, you haven't got any principles yourself. Um, so if he could be described as right wing um, or a radical, um, he had, he's, he's famous or he's known. That's one reason why he's, I think maybe he generated loyalty amongst that small band of um, MPs and, and those who would become MPs because they saw that this he was a man of principle, um, that his principles weren't necessarily um, the ones that many in his own party might agree with, um, but but that he believed in what he said. So so when he wanted to take Clause 4 on, I mean, the context for this, in, for, for listeners, is that Labour had lost the general election in 1959 um, and it was a third election in a row that had lost. Familiar story for the Labour Party. And and Gateskill believed that this was one reason why Labour lost. It's because it it had this utopian, unrealistic vision um, that it need and it was no longer really relevant had it ever been to nationalise evermore, um, you know, industry, and that it needed to make a statement about its position in the modern world, and that would involve revising that original clause four, which. Abevan apparently agreed with. He saw the speech that he made at party conference and agreed with. Um, but so yeah, it's it's like what what were his principles then? Um, if 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 he is a man of principle, what 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 did he, what object did he see for Labour other than we've got to be realistic? What what were the positive things? If he was a radical, did he want a Labour government, which unfortunately he was never able to lead? What did he want it to achieve? He wanted it to to fundamentally transform uh, society to tackle poverty, to tackle the unfairness and injustice in society. He wanted a rule-based system of international relations and his opposition to Eden Stance and Suez reflected that. He thought that um, uh, the alliance with America was vital to defending democratic countries from the threat of um, Soviet invasion and subversion. And he thought that the um, American position on Suez, trying to uh, advocate an international uh, uh, group of users to run the canal, was was, uh, to be supportive. And Eden's um, uh, approach, which which Nye Bevan characterised as international anarchy, and Gates completely agreed with him on that. Um, 
but he had no truck with the sort of knee-jerk anti-Americanism that part of the Labour Party indulged in. And some of that anti-Americanism was basically a front by uh, by people who supported the Soviet Union. And there was a fundamental problem in the Labour Party in those early 1950s of that. And that's where the Stalybridge speech came from that he made, where he, where he took that on. Um, there'd been a big battle at the 1952 Labour conference where uh, nearly two million votes were cast uh, uh, demanding for resolution, demanding that the trade unions... Uh, initiate industrial action to bring down the Conservative government by force. Um, most of the main union leaders had said this was outrageous and um, that it was their job as union leaders to decide for industrial reasons what industrial action they should take. And it wasn't for activists at Labour conference to order them to mount a revolution. And the resolution was heavily defeated. But there were still nearly two million votes cast for it. And the union leaders who stood up and said, who are you to tell us what to do? I'm here for my members, were heckled and abused by Labour activists. And Gateskill was the, 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 the member of the shadow cabinet to stand up and say, this is wrong. And, and that was something that he believed fundamentally in. He didn't hide behind others. He saw it as a, a function of leadership to lead from the front. Um, that was also... Um, where he sometimes made mistakes because he didn't prepare the ground. And when he went to the 1959 Labour conference and said uh, he thought we need to uh, change Clause 4, he hadn't talked to many of the union leaders about it. He hadn't prepared the ground. And many of his allies saw this and saw the 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 um, consequence of that when it all became a bit of a mess, and Nye Bevan rescued him. Uh, and again, that showed the depth of the relationship that they'd built. Um, but actually, if you look at um, other styles of leadership, uh, Keir Starmer's success uh, in changing the rules at the most recent Labour conference reflects the success of a slightly different approach. Um, in those circumstances, he did prepare the ground. And he won the vote. I mean, you you, you raised clause four, and you you just started to, to do it, draw a comparison, maybe with Keir Starmer, but um, but the clause four um, revision um, has led some people to see um, Gateskill as a kind of Tony Blair before Blair. Um, I mean, there have only been there have only been two biographies of Hugh Gateskill, which is a surprisingly small number. Um, one one written by a very close um, friend, I think, and and confidant. Philip Williamson in the late 70s and the other in 1996 by Brian Brevati. And inevitably, Brevati makes some comparisons um, with Gateskill and, and Blair, saying, you know, like, like Gateskill, Blair le- leads from the front. This is, of course, before he's become prime minister. Um, and and this Clause 4 episode being being the thing that, that draws the comparisons. I mean, do you see do you see that as valid? I mean, uh, that, that, that Gateskill can be seen as Blair before Blair, or is he a much more sort of rooted in the context of his times? Can I come in on this, Steve? I mean, I wonder whether, um, as a kind of teaser for our podcast, you tweeted um, this YouGov poll showing the favourable or unfavourable or unsure opinions about previous Labour leaders. And notably, um, Gateskill is is third from last in terms of favourables, but 
below Tony Blair, who's fourth from last, right? Yes. Um, and you have only 29% of people with a favorable opinion of Gates, go 37 with a favorable percent of Blair, Blair. But it's hard not to wonder whether part of that is because in that people remember Gateskill, um, you know, they think of him, they associate him with the attempt to get rid of Clause 4. And they sort of, and then he becomes elided in their minds with Tony Blair having gotten rid of Clause 4 and having somehow gutted the spirit of the Labour Party. And Gateskill is kind of tarred by association. Um, and it's an association based largely on kind of a, a lack of knowledge or information. But I think that that context, um, you know, I mean, perhaps helps explain some of the the prejudicial um, attitudes towards Gateskill and who, unlike Blair, doesn't go on to lead the party, so doesn't have kind of other, or doesn't go on to lead, um, to become prime minister, doesn't have the the positives of having been in government. I mean, Greg, do you think, do you, what do you think about the comparison? Is it just too superficial and just the sort of thing we expect maybe of a, of a journalist looking looking for a nice nice comparison? Because so that, that, one thing, at least, that Gates School, I mean, he wanted to revise Clause 4. He wanted to take nationalisation out of the centre of Labour's objectives. He saw it as a means, not an end. And he, But he still believed in nationalisation in, in certain instances, whereas, of course, Tony Blair did not. Um, it was a maybe a rather different kind of revision that he was seeking. You've hit the nail on the head there. And um, Gateskill absolutely believed that, that public ownership of industries had a role in building a better society. And that was another reason why he was so frustrated with those from the Marxist left. He accused him of being against it. What he opposed was the idea that you should have a list of 500 uh, industries that you should nationalise on ideological grounds. His hinterland was, as an economist he'd done, he'd done PPE at Oxford. He was one of the early uh, uh, early folk on the course, apparently. But um, unlike some, it was economics that he embraced. And his career before becoming a minister was very much as, as an economist. And he believed, and, and he was by no means alone in this um, uh, at the time, that planning and um, collectivism provided... Uh, the best route to more efficient industry. This was a view shared by the Conservative government uh, at the time, the Macmillan government, uh, Selwyn Lloyd, all of them. Butskillism, uh, uh, named after um, uh, Rab Butler, the Conservative Chancellor and Hugh Gateskill, uh, who had succeeded, um, uh, very much showed the, it reflected uh, as, a, as a term that cross-party uh, uh, consensus, although there were very different aims in the Conservative and Labour Party at that time, and they disagreed on much. But um, Gateskill and Nye Bevan and Roy Jenkins and others at that time, in an array of speeches, pointed out that, that um, though they were wholly opposed to the uh, human rights and and uh, attitude to human rights and democracy in the Soviet Union, there was a widespread belief at that time that the Soviet approach was better at manufacturing tractors uh, and more efficient at it than um, the, the private sector had been in Britain. And frankly, there was a lot of evidence in Britain of extremely inefficient practices 
in failing private businesses that were frequently going bust. And the whole white heat of technology rhetoric that Harold Wilson put as the centerpiece of that um, uh, victorious 1964 election campaign, that was really rooted in what Hugh Gaitska was talking about. And Wilson's brilliance, helped by the young Tony Benn, who had equally been helping Hugh Gateskill with the 1959 television broadcast. Tony Benn was arguably the first spin doctor to a Labour leader. Um, uh, that whole white heat uh, 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 stuff was, was, um, was at the heart of what Gateskill was talking about. Um, in the 1959 election, Labour was criticised by some for saying that it would increase investment without having to increase taxes on ordinary wage earners. The, the way they were going to do that, Gateskill argued, was by growing the economy better, which is exactly what Wilson said he would do. And the difference between that and Blair, I think, is that um, by the time Blair became prime minister, the nationalised industries had been shown to be a lot less successful and planning had been shown to be a lot less successful than Gateskill and Bevan and Roy Jenkins and Harold Macmillan had all hoped. And what Blair was trying to do was evolve Labour's economic thinking, Blair and Brown, of course, uh, evolve Labour's economic thinking um, in the light of that. When you've you mentioned Wilson, and, and, and I think one reason why um, I, I find it interesting to talk about Hugh Gates School um, is because, um, I mean, at, at the present moment with Keir Starmer, there have been a lot of comparisons with, with Harold Wilson and what both of them were meant to be trying to achieve. In fact, Harold Wilson keeps popping up. And when, when Ed Miliband was leader, people were making comparisons between what Ed Miliband wanted to do and what Harold Wilson wanted to do. And you've just, you've just made, made, made a point, really, that's quite important that many of the things that we associate with Harold Wilson's governments, um, the good things anyway, were, were actually the foundations were laid by, by, by Hugh Gates school. Um, and I mean, I've, I've seen some of those 1959 campaign broadcasts that you, that you mentioned, and I've seen Hugh Gates school delivering. Oh, he was terrible. I mean, in terms of television, he was very stolid. You know, he was, he was sitting behind a big desk with a big um, with a big atlas, um, and I think that I think that frustrated Tony Tony Ben because he wanted things to be, be hip and happening. But he was insisting on a ten minute speech, you know, about foreign policy. You know, uh, so Hugh Gates go. I mean, is it is one reason why why we don't really think so much is because he didn't do white heat. He di he didn't have the panache, the presentation skills of a Harold Wilson. He maybe had the principles. That Harold Wilson lacked. That was a, that would be a criticism. Maybe that's a height to highlight. But he just couldn't sell. He just couldn't sell the message. I, I, I think you're right. And uh, but but also as well, um, the as you said, um, a lot of the uh, policies the Wilson government tried to implement, a lot of his successes were were actually. Gatesville's approaches. I mean, the Open University Apart, which was was very much a Jenny Lee Harold Wilson thing, and Harold Wilson talks about it as being his proudest achievement. So much of that agenda actually was 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 inherited from Gatesville, as indeed uh, chunks of the um, 1997 agenda were inherited from John Smith and and Neil Kinnock. Um, uh, one of the um, 
one of the sort of signature policies that Tony Blair was talking about, uh, reducing class sizes to 30, was also one of the signature policies that Harold Wilson was talking about. And it was actually a signature policy of Hugh Gateskill in the 1959 election. Um, and um, classes still are above 30. But um, a big challenge is that the Wilson government was seen to have failed in so many ways. And um, that's why it lost the 1970 election. And after that, you got this big swing to the left. The left and the Labour Party uh, argued that the failure of the Wilson government uh, electorally, it lost the 1970 election, and politically, in terms of achieving uh, what it set out to do, fundamentally it said, vote for us, give us a decent majority, and we will run the economy far better than Conservatives have, and we'll be able to use that extra economic growth to provide far greater social investment and, 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 and greater uh, public services. And, and Wilson had that tiny majority in 1964, said, give me the big one 1966, got that big majority in 1966. And then what happens? You have all these cuts. And that famous book uh, uh, by Clive Ponting, Breach of Promise, sort of sums up how the Wilson government was seen by many in the mainstream of Labour as having breached the sort of promise it was, it was supposed to do. And then uh, the left and Tony Benn and others and allied with that said, they've let you down. Uh, the, the, the sort of um, uh, governing wing of the Labour Party said it would do these things, they've let you down. And that was seen to discredit the approach that Gateskill was very much at the heart of, even though, of course, he hadn't been involved in that government. One of the ironies at the centre of this is that the central mistake that Wilson is said by so many to have made was the failure to devalue right at the beginning. He went in, he formed that government, and it was crystal clear that the economic uh, situation was a mess that they'd inherited. And they had that meeting, Harold Wilson, George Brown, Jim Callaghan, and they decided not to devalue. And that completely torpedoed the national plan, all the ambitions and everything then cut from that. And, and why did that happen? Because Harold Wilson was scared. It became the great unmentionable in, in Downing Street in those discussions. And Hugh Gateskill, who'd been very involved in the 1949 devaluation, had played a very positive role in that. Gateskill, uh, uh, many people say, and, and it's interesting, Peter Shaw writes about this. Peter Shaw was very much close to Wilson, that Gateskill would have had the courage to devalue first off. And the question I'd ask is, could that have led to the success of that government? And perhaps to a whole different history after. Well, c- certainly, um, if you if you read some of the memoirs of, of Gateskill's supporters uh, who ended up being in in the cabinet, watching all this going on, um, and and some of their own diary entries, they, they they make that comparison, don't they, with with Wilson sort of dissembling, not not taking on certain difficult critical decisions, which devaluation being the most critical, and they. And they do say, I mean, they quite explicitly do say, if only Hugh had been here, then those difficult decisions would have been made. And, and maybe devaluation was the one. And maybe that then would have helped create a more successful Wilson government. But the other the other thing um, that, that they kind of hark to and and the Philip Williams biography, which was written in the later 70s, um, is is it had. Hugh Gates would have been leader of the party, that then the left wouldn't have had the, you know, it wouldn't have had the rise it would have had. I mean, the, the, their criticism of Wilson was that he he refused to take on 
um, the the wider party that he he just dissembled and and that and that 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 worked for a short amount of time, but in the long run it was disastrous. Um, and that if Gates could have been in charge, then that wouldn't have happened. I mean, whether that was whether that was correct or not, but um, I mean, I don't know what you think about that. Whether a, a Hugh Gates school led party would have not only been more economically successful, but maybe would have been able to go into the 1970s, a different kind of a party, not a party that that Tony Benn and, you know, the left wing might have been able to take take control of? I think for three reasons that there, there might have been differences. And, and obviously, with all this is, is speculation. But um, firstly, if Gateskill had... Um, taken that decision to devalue first off. And that then would have enabled the government to be more successful economically and have avoided those cuts. Um, And that would have helped the moderate candidates in the big trade union elections, which came up in 1967-68, to avoid defeat by the hard left. One of the big things that shifted things in the Labour movement was, and in, in those days, the power of the leader of the union was enormous and the power of the bloc votes. You'd already had a big shift when the um, uh, when Frank Cousins, the left-wing candidate, won the leadership of the TNG, and that caused Hugh Gates got big problems back in the 50s. But all of the other major unions were led uh, by, by candidates not of the, the Labour left. Um, in the late 60s, most of the others swung left, the moderate candidates were all defeated in those elections. And the reason was that the um, the left-wing candidates accused the others of being too pro-government. And had the government been less unpopular, which could have come from the evaluation thing, that wouldn't have happened. The consequence of those unions moving to the left meant that they allied with uh, Ian Mercado and others who wanted to allow um, the blocks that there had been on um, Marxist groups infiltrating the Labour Party to be raised. And that then happened in the 70s. And Gateskill would have would have fought that far more directly. Ironically, and this is one of the, the, the point that, that, that uh, should be made in defence of Harold Wilson, um, Wilson um, feared that a number of Gateskill's great friends and allies resented his being the Labour leader, um, wouldn't forgive him for the fact that he had challenged Hugh Gates School. And he never felt that he could let his guard down and wanted to have a round in people he trusted. And that meant that he feared that if he stood up too strongly to some of those on the hard left, that that maybe he would alienate people that he, whose support he needed in case a someone like Roy Jenkins stood against him for the leadership. And had Gateskill been there, he wouldn't have had that to worry about. Yeah, I mean, I've, I mean, having read, like I said, some, some of the memoirs of those people, it was just the ghost. The ghost of Hugh Gateskill hovered over that government, and that, it was like they were looking. They were always looking behind behind them, and uh, and yeah, they and they they clearly did loathe. Harold Wilson. He was right to be paranoid, I think, at some at some level. Um, but but this this I mean, just just to think, going beyond um, the the Wilson government, and I mean, many of his own closest supporters, like Roy Jenkins, or actually 
Roy Jenkins, who was going to be his official biographer um, when he wasn't less busy, um, but that never happened. That you know, many of his own followers, closest allies, they all formed the SDP and and actually said explicitly, we, we have to leave the Labour Party because now it's in the hands of the left, and we want to create a new party, but a party in the mould of Hugh Gateskill. Um, I mean, is that is that maybe that's another reason why some people in the Labour Party are a little bit iffy about about Hugh Gateskill that he's associated with that lot, maybe unfairly, uh, because you know they might have been using his name in vain. Um, that, because 20 years had happened since his death. Um, but it's also interesting that when, when New Labour happened, and, and there have been comparisons, like, like I mentioned, about Clause 4 and Blair, what Blair was trying to do, Blair had never talked about Hugh Gates' goal. I mean, he didn't talk about Harold Wilson either. That, that it wasn't as if Tony Blair and Peter Mandelson and others said, we are now, you know, we're New Labour. We've got nothing to do with all that. And Hugh Gates' goal was kind of thrown into the dustbin of history along with, Everything that was old Labour. I mean, it's, is that was the reason why for that? I mean, Laura, you would like to say something. Well, I think just to come in on and, you know, over the use of Gateskill by the SDP and the association, right? Um, Steve is, we're sitting, we can all see each other, though you guys can't see us. And he's wearing a fight, fight, fight t-shirt as we talk, right? Um, and one of the things that Gates, one of the, um, the phrases he's best remembered for um, is from 1960 when he declares um, that he would fight and fight and fight again to save the party we love, right? And the difference, I think, with the SDP is to do with that, um, you know, the way in which splitting or taking your divisions to the point at which you break the party is viewed within the Labour Party. And I think that Gateskill, though being of the right, wouldn't have countenanced the idea of splitting the party he loved, right? You fight to save it. You don't kind of give it up for lost and go create your own party. And so I think in that sense, um, despite the divisions between left and right, when he was leader of the opposition, that then became exacerbated throughout the 1960s, right? that there's a sort of false illusion to associate Gateskill with the emergence of the SDP. I think that's absolutely right. And um, uh, one of the, um, as you say, uh, most of the those who set up the SDP were self-consciously Gateskillites. But um, many of those who were also self-consciously Gateskillites stayed with Labour. Dennis Healy, notably, uh, Roy Hattersley, John Smith, Donald Dewar, others. What did then happen within Labour, though, is that um, with there being far fewer in the Parliamentary Labour Party who were self-consciously Gateskillites, they tended to fare less well in shadow cabinet elections. And as the power of the left grew within the Labour Party, um, it became career limiting to admit to being a Gateskillite. And only those with extreme courage um, were prepared to do it. And um, Neil Kinnock was self-consciously a Bevanite Many of those around him were self-consciously Bevanites. Michael Foote was the self-conscious Bevanite, his biographer, and, and arguably more Bevanite than Nye. Um, whereas Nye had arguably reconciled with Gateskill, Michael Foote possibly not so much. And in the politics of the 1980s, incredibly poisonous 
place, even more so arguably than Labour in the 1950s, which was pretty bad. It was, if you wanted to survive and not be deselected, it was um, inadvisable to admit to being a Gaitskellite, safer to admit to being a Bevanite. And a lot of folk moved that way. The younger generation coming in, again, who did they admire above them? There weren't so many people who talked about being Gaitskellites anymore. And as you, as you, as you said, it was um, uh, within the Labour pantheon, splitting is a, is a, a great betrayal. And, and therefore, the fact that so many self-conscious Gaitskellites had joined the SDP undermined the ability of, of, of Gaitskellism with the Labour Party. But uh, as you said, whether Hugh himself would have left, um, it's arguable that, that not only would he have stayed, but um, he, having, if he had lived, um, the party would have been different and such a breakaway would have been less likely to happen. But the emotion, Hugh Gateskill's emotional attachment to the Labour Party was was monumental. I mean, just just to think about um, a sort of a, a sort of concluding point to this to this discussion. Um, I mean, I, I started it off by referring to that to that YouGov poll, which suggested like two thirds of Labour members really didn't know very much about Hugh Gateskill. And I mean, Gateskill is kind of this this little bit in between. There's Attlee, which people seem to think they know quite a bit about Attlee. There's certainly talk and. and People like to compare Labour leaders to Attlee and with Wilson as well. Um, he's, he often pops up, as I've said. But then there's this kind of gap. Um, now, are there any are there any lessons? I mean, this is kind of one of those silly things that people ask, but, and therefore I'm going to ask it. Uh, I mean, are there any lessons for, for the contemporary Labour Party, maybe the contemporary Labour leader, that they could take positively and negatively from, from the leadership of Hugh Gateskill, um, given you know the objective of trying to win the next general election, absolutely. I think, firstly, the tremendous warmth and admiration that Gateskill was held by so many who knew him directly and and knew him from a distance was his courage and passion for fighting for what he thought was right, his preparedness to take on difficult issues and try and shape the debate to explain why he thought a course of action was the right course of action, both within the party and to the country. It did mean sometimes that he uh, supported perhaps a less electorally popular and populist approach than some of his critics might um, uh, have advocated. For example, he was a passionate opponent of restrictions on Commonwealth immigration, fighting incredibly hard against the 1961 Commonwealth Immigration Act at a time when that stance was electorally uh, vote losing in some places uh, amongst a racist vote. It was also um, potentially damaging to Labour's electoral prospects to take the stance he did on Suez. Jim Callaghan feared it had lost votes. Herbert Morrison thought it had lost votes, but he thought it was the right thing to do. It was also damaging to his leadership to um, 
say to the party in 1959 after that election, uh, I think we need to change Clause 4. But he did that because it, he thought it was the right thing to do. He'd seen where the votes had gone in that 1959 election. Uh, the the big shift was that the Liberal vote had doubled and, and, uh, and a lot of that vote had come from Labour. Uh, it certainly wasn't going to the hard left. It wasn't going to Communist Party. And he'd seen the amount of time and effort Labour had spent arguing with itself. On the other side, um, he didn't always prepare the ground. He didn't work as effectively with some as he could. And uh, a particular instance of that is, is the failure to build a partnership early on with Nye Bevan, the fact that they were rivals for so long, which undermined them both. If Bevan and Gateskill had built more of a partnership earlier on, the Labour Party would have been so much stronger. The fact that they did at the end is a tribute to both of them. One thing that we haven't really had a chance to talk about in reference to Gateskill were his attitudes towards um, the European Union, which, of course, he did um, was not a supporter of joining the European Union. And his vision for Britain was one that was much more as a power, as we've mentioned, with a um, close alignment with the United States, but also as an imperial and commonwealth power. Gateskill is often depicted as being completely opposed to uh, joining the common market. And he was actually very clear, both in private to his friends and allies and in public, in uh, particularly in a uh, party broadcast he made in May 1962, um, that his position was uh, conditional uh, on the terms and he supported joining on good terms. He said in that broadcast to go in on good terms would be the best solution. He added not to go in would be a pity but not a catastrophe, but to join on bad terms would be a mistake. And the Roots of the Thousand Years of History speech, which was shaped rhetorically by Peter Shaw, who was the great anti-European, was concern over the terms and concerned that the terms would harm the Commonwealth. But it is not impossible that Gateskill's position would have evolved to support joining in a way that Peter Shaw's never did. I mean, it's just just to conclude, it's kind of ironic that um, um, just just as you know, that, that last speech he gave at the party conference in 1962, where he referred to, you know, joining a federal Europe would be to throw away a thousand years of British history, wasn't it? That's that that was that was a context for that speech. Um, that actually ended up uniting a largely um, Eurosceptic Labour Party um, and appealing to people who had hitherto thought Hugh Gates got he's a right winger. He wanted to get rid of clause for um, that. By by the time of his death, he'd actually succeeded in uniting the party, um, even though he had confronted it over unilateralism and over clause four. Um, and so I guess one of the lessons maybe, or maybe it sounds banal, but one of the lessons maybe that Hugh Gateskill has for any Labour leader is you have to mix confrontation based on the principles that you believe in with, with a desire to bring the party together because um, it needs to, that kind of a leader, not one that sort of dissembles all the time, like maybe Harold Wilson 
uh, arguably arguably did or one that's always confronting it with with difficult things and not appreciating the the odd, the odd character of the party but also that actually people in the Labour Party generally agree on most things um, and they just need a leader to articulate it in a principled way that maybe Gate School did do but unfortunately for him just like John Smith just on the verge of be thinking they were about to become Prime Minister in the next year or so um, they they were not they were not able they were denied that opportunity um, so anyway thank you thank you Greg for, for that um, thank you and maybe it's going to make more people at least know something about Hugh Gates' goal and become interested in in him a little bit. Um, and also thanks to Laura. Um, and we will um, reconvene for our fourth podcast on the subject TBD um, in a few weeks. In a few weeks. All right.